Hi, I'm Dan. Hi, I'm Jenny. And this is Rookie Movie Reviews. Darn tootin'. Darn Today. Tootin'. Well, yesterday. We can use movie magic to say it's today, or audio magic. Today we watched Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, a 1957 Kubrick classic. This came out the same year as Paths of Glory, which is crazy. Yeah, that really caught me off guard. Two black and white anti-war classics with wildly different tones. Mm-hmm. Very different tones. This one's a comedy. Yes. Kind of, satire. For the most part, yeah. there's some heavy is... moments. That's true. So this movie is based on the book Red Alert, and it was adapted into the screenplay by Kubrick and a few other folks. So this one's... Uh... Pretty good one. It opens with a narrator talking about the Soviets building some kind of weapon. Yeah, off under some mysterious mountain range. Yeah. After, I thought this was kind of funny, there's a title crawl similar to Star Wars where they have to say this is not indicative of any real events and it's not our view of politics or whatever. I forget how they phrase it exactly, but it was very much, we are not liable for the contents of this film, it's a work of fiction. Yeah. Which is probably a good move when you're depicting nuclear war with the Soviets during the Cold War. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it's wise, for sure. So with this narration talking about this Soviet weapon, there's shots of a B-52 flying through the clouds. And this is pretty cool because there's also some dramatic music. Yeah, like very, I kind of thought of it as... Beautiful orchestral music. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like springtime type music. Yeah. That's and the better. juxtaposition was funny to me because these machines of war. There's a lot of juxtaposition in this movie. It's a very potent one. Yeah. Later on. Those refueling B-52s mid-flight and the mar- marvel of man, you know, technology and all that. Yeah. Opening crawl. Thank you, Wright Brothers. Big ups to the Wright Brothers. <laughs> we get a shout out for the Wright Brothers. <laughs> Wright Rose. Okay. So then we uh, get some establishing shots of a U.S. airbase, which I wanted to call out because in The Shining, uh, Kubrick does a lot of really good establishing shots for the hotel. I'm glad so. you mentioned that because this is episode three of the six Kubrick movie marathon. We're watching all six on those back to back to back. To back, to back, to back. And (laughs) thank you for calling out the similarities because I'm kind of hoping to learn about this guy and how he does it and going through these, uh, going through these movies, not sequentially, but seeing them all at once. Oh yeah, not sequentially at all. Yeah. So call outs like that, I appreciate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We started with his latest one. So Kubrick, (laughs) Uh, His latest one for this list. I, I don't know if he's come out with movies since The Shining. His last movie was Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, shit. And he died a couple weeks after the first screening, I believe. Oh, damn. Yeah. No uh, fan mail for Kubrick. No. <laughs> Not going to be able to write him any letters. He's long dead. So we're at this Air Force base, like you say, and we get a phone conversation with a Code Red R warning. Like, there's a lot of phrases, passphrases, and codes. And I think it's kind of the goal of the movie to make it a bit ridiculous how many codes there are and how complex the language is, just for seemingly no reason other than being complex. Like, code R, plan R, code red, passcode is. Like, that type of shit is all throughout the movie. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely over the top, but... They totally used that many codes to prevent the Soviets from learning anything. Yes, that's fair. I guess in my fictionalized view of the Cold War, um, it has become a... What, what is the phrase? So, like you say, it's real how this stuff happened and how over the top it was. But now that it's over, or while you're in it critiquing it in the moment as the movie would be in 57. You can use the very things that happened for real to point out the ridiculousness of it when it was happening. You know, so like the codes, yeah, they were super complex, 
but someone could easily take it and be like, look how high up their own asses they are and how ridiculous this whole system is. I guess that's satire. <laughs> I just, I invented my own understanding of satire. <laughs> Others have done it many times over for me, and I just wasn't listening. Okay, so this phone conversation. Is this when we see the secretary, or is that later? That's much that's later. later. So this conversation is between Ripper and, I want to say it's Mandrake. But okay. that might be later. Yeah, the beginning is a little fuzzy to me, to yeah. be honest. That's fine. I'll, we'll, we'll say, I know Ripper is one. So Ripper, I, I forget the inception of the whole panic. Ripper. It is Ripper making the call. He makes the call of Code Red. Yes. And he says, we have basically an, an ambush is going yep, on. Yep, a sneak attack happened. Uh, I think it is, Mandrake. I just remember that um, Clan R, and he's reading it off to this other general. And I think he says R is in Robert. Yeah. So later on they say R for Romeo. So I don't know if oh, that's another point too. That is a that is a good point because the the alphanumeric alphabet that's used, it would yeah. be Romeo. And Robert, I wonder if that's a comment of like, this guy isn't that good of a general. He doesn't really know. I don't know enough about the military to say for sure if that's what they're going for, but... Hey, maybe. Maybe. Okay. So, he also... Oh, no, okay. It 100% is between Ripper and Mandrake because he also asks him to impound private radios at this time. Okay. Good call. Yes. So... Mandrake, a some British... Some mustachio dude. Yeah. He's a British officer on some, uh, like, work share program, pretty much. They allude to it later on, how he's over as some sort of amnesty thing. Uh, but he is a British officer. He wears an RAF uniform. Someone calls him out later on in the movie, and they're like, what's with that weird suit? Like, this is an RAF uniform, sir. So he's a British officer, the mustachioed man, collecting radios. And then <laughs> we get some narrator exposition, which I always find to be super lazy, but it has its purpose in this movie. And then I noticed after this... We don't really get narration again. Yeah. So he's just doing some establishing. So it does seem a little lazy in, in that context. But it's helpful for you and I because we're watching this movie 60 years later. 63 years later. Yeah, 40, 50, exactly. 60, 60, yep, 63. Nice. Perfect. Did better than we did Yeah, I forget. <laughs> I shut that memory out immediately. Okay. Uh, I, I like you say the narration does show it has a point because this guy is narrating the destructive force of B-52s and how they're two hours from their destination at all times and how it's war ready and it, things are tense and then we cut to the inside of the B-52 and they're reading Playboys, sleeping, yep. playing cards, like the least tense environment that you could imagine for now. And from what I know of the Air Force and the military in general, like, they hang out, you know, when it's not mission serious. Yeah, for sure. So that's classic good old boys. Classic good old boys. Shortly after we see somebody napping, we cut down to over, I guess, because they're kind of on the same level. Yeah. But the code officer, I guess, and he gets FGD-135. Ooh, details. Yes. Very nice. And he has his uh, decoder book, and he's flipping through the pages, and he matches it up, and he calls up to the captain. Which, this de- oh, go ahead. I just want to say, this decoder book mm-hmm. is so funny, because now you think of some computer-inept person writing their password on a little sticky note, <laughs> and they've got a book of passwords just sitting there. Not very secure, no. but... True. So you were saying he calls up to the captain. Yes, that they have a code R. The captain doesn't believe it. He says there's got to be something wrong. But he validates it. It is a true, not an exercise, R for Romeo, code R. Mm-hmm. And the saints go marching in and starts playing while these guys are getting serious. But the captain puts on a cowboy hat. Yeah. Which... He's... Going into, because he's a stereotypical southerner yeah, he's type. Yeah, he's got a drawl, and it's just these funny rituals. 
one thing. So they're talking about their their obligation to their country and their fellow man, and they're going to go be heroes. But he caps it off by talking about, like, also, guys, if we pull this off, we're all in line for promotions. So it kind of seems like a funny little jab at, yeah, it's built up to be heroic, and they're going to uh, kill for their country, but they've really got self-promotion in mind. Eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize, for real. And it just kind of undermines their whole heroic or the captain's heroic approach, because everyone else is kind of business as usual, and they're getting down to it, but the captain is full of theatrics. Yeah. I think this is also when I realized that Ripper's first name is Jack. So he's Jack Ripper. Yeah, that's funny. Jack the Ripper, classic 1800 serial killer of prostitutes. I don't think it lines up too much with the other themes of the story, but I think it's a call-out to a killer. Yeah, he is a he's a crazy killer. You know, he he wants conflict. So well, it'll be another one from fifty seven. Um, fifty seven's a long time ago for a serial um, killers. Another oh, a serial killer. From yeah, 57? I'm to That's think. your realm. I don't know. All I can think of are ones from the seventies because there's a big theory that all the leaded gas from the fifties is what contributed to people growing up. 30 years later and becoming these serial killers. So that's where it's, uh, excuse me. So that's why there's this boom in the 70s and 80s of some maniac killers. Because there, there are a lot. I've never heard that. You haven't? Thing. No. That's huh. cool. I, I, I'll believe it wholeheartedly until well, you tell me something else. Well, that's a theory that I really take heart in. But I think another part of it is also the advancement of technology. So tracking all of these killers or linking these murders as police work got more advanced also draws some lines together that wouldn't have been there before. And that's kind of, this makes me think of Mindhunter. We've mm-hmm. only seen yeah, season one. Yeah, because they, that's when they invented the term too, the late 60s. Yeah, so that, and I feel like one of the ideas is how long has this been going on and we just didn't care to track it or mm-hmm. try and learn about it. And uh, now that we are, you know, but then you could probably end the time since Late 60s. Yeah. There's probably been some peering into the past, seeing patterns, I'm sure. Definitely. Um, who is the devil in the White City? Oh, H.H. Uh, Holmes. H.H. H. Holmes. Yeah, that could have been another one. It could have been, like, could have been Hank Holmes was the name of the general. Yeah. yeah. So. That would have been good. Whatever. I'm such a shithead. That book has such praise. And people are like, oh, they mix history and drama so well. It feels like a fiction story. And let me tell you, it is a lot of history. It, yeah, I tried it's to read it too. so much history. The, it's a lot about the World Fair and the architecture around that. The first three quarters... Did you finish it? No. Oh. I got about three quarters of the way through. <laughs> and it was all architecture and load-bearing struts and a gardener who they hired for the World Fair to devise the perfect flower bed. And then every 50 pages, it'd be like, H.H. Holmes purchases a hotel. <laughs> and then you would go back to like 12 chapters of uh, committee planning. Give me the murder. Yeah, I, that's pretty much, yeah. yeah. I'm, my attention span is a little gnat, a little gnat size. I want I want that. But... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make a true crime podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's that? Uh, Solar Opposites. Yes. Listening to true crime? Cool. Making one? anyhow so they're up in the plane talking promotions now we cut to a woman tanning uh the executive assistant to general bucky bucky yeah buck brigital or something turgidson turgidson thank you i knew there was a weird g turgid is a word isn't it turgid is a word i think it is about you know sexual poopies no. Turgidson? Tur- Turgid. That's a that's what you call it. His name is Turgid. Yeah. Which is like boners. <laughs> if Game of Thrones taught me anything, Turgid is a sexual term. <laughs> oh man. Also night soil or night water? Night soil is shit. Yes. So anyway, there's this hilariously egregious woman in a bikini scene. Which makes sense for some themes of man's base desires in this movie. Um, but I thought 
Her bikini looked a bit like a diaper. Could have been a sexier bikini. It was baggy. I bet it was scandalous as hell in 57. Oh, yeah. It was scandalous in 2020. Not really. We're pretty used to it. But she was tanning on a bed, and she was wearing high heels while while tanning, which, looking back on it, good idea, because if you get a sunburn while tanning, if you got burned on the bottom of your feet, no bueno. The high heels are kind of what make it male gazy, because... To you? I think. I didn't really notice the high heels because, you know, there was a full-on bikini, like, Uh I didn't see the shoes, but you pointed out that there was general, the general comes by, he's wearing just boxers or a swimsuit or something. Right, and he's got, like, an open shirt. Yeah, and then he takes his shirt off. Woohoo! So, I think it was egregious in the high heels, I don't know, like, are they supposed to be doing work right now and she was wearing some sort of work thing but they have a little tryst i think at least they balance the the level of nudity between people another another thing very classic 50s thing is that they had separate beds but they are obviously doing like a sexual relationship yes it's purely sex but they have two twins (laughs) it's so funny i agree also one line that came up that was pretty silly was uh General comes in, he's like, oh, I guess I'll just mosey over to the war room. It's super casual, and it introduces this air of bizarreness that was already introduced by the Mandrake in general and the soldiers and everything, and the -the over-the-top confusion about the code. Yep. But the phrase moseying over to the war room, there was a more iconic one later on, but this one was a funny little tone setter for how humorous it was going to end up being. Another want to call out the woman's role in the scene was Turgidson was getting dressed, maybe going to the bathroom, shaving. I don't know what he was doing, but she was communicating between him and another general, and Turgidson was like screaming, like he's being really rude, and then she would just translate it to super nice, like, would it be possible? And yeah, I really like that. And it went on so long. It was funny. It got funnier. Yeah. Uh. We cut back to the Air Force base that's on lockdown under Ripper's command. And they're listening over the loudspeaker, Mm -hmm. uh, him losing his mind. And they're all on board, clearly. But he says there's three rules. Number one, trust no one. Number two, fire upon anyone who comes within 200 yards of the perimeter. And number three, shoot first, ask later. I'd rather have some accidental casualties... To apologize for than have a whole Air Force base lost. Yes. And he's pounding it into their heads that they're in code red. The Ruskies are coming. They're going to dress like us. They might look like us. They might sneak. They might come in mass. And it's just this paranoia scene. I'd like to call out that he does this over an announcement. Yeah, like so a PA So this is system. like replacing the narration. Oh! So like, uh, Ruskies have no regard for human life. Kind of stuff, so now he's setting the truth for the movie. That is clever. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, the full disembodied voice. Nice, Jenny. Nice, Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, but you noticed it. So, so. Uh, after that, if you want to talk more about the base, we can. Otherwise, I was going to say back to the Saints go marching in. And when we first heard this song, I thought of the Ants go marching in, which is like a children's take, which probably isn't the intention. But I think the first play of it is um, playful. It is more whimsical. Because then, this time it has like humming choir and heavy drums and stuff. Yes. And that was definitely not the same vibe the first time. No. So that's a good call. And okay. I agree. So yeah. So this is a much more dramatic humming. And it reminded me that it's Saints. So it's a tonal shift. So they're setting up the attack plan on the plane. And we are hearing all of these... Uh, Predefined, well, they have the rule book for code R, and they have to switch the CRM114s, or they have to switch the radio frequency to CRM114 as a channel, and only accept frequencies with a code prefix. And the code prefix is OPE, and I think that's great for us as Midwesterners, because we say O all the time. Yes. But that's not what it stands for. It seemed, I bet to most people, it just seemed like three random letters in the 50s. Which is important because it's just three random letters. So they're aiming for the ICBM uh, 
base, so intercontinental ballistic missile yes. base, uh, Laputa, which doesn't sound very Russian. No, I, not at all. It sounds very Spanish. Yeah, or just... The bitch. The, the, oh, that's what that means? La oh, Yeah, okay. Su mamá es una puta. <laughs> Don't say that shit about my mom. <laughs> Sorry, Deb. <laughs> the attack plans are executed. They are now essentially locked off from communication. Yeah. Nobody, nobody in, nobody out. Except Ripper. Ripper knows the code. Yeah. He's the only man who knows the code on the planet. And... He's effectively set up an impenetrable fortress. He's cut off communications into the fort. They're going to shoot at people that come up to the fort. No more radios. No civilian radios. Yeah. So we see... Uh, Mandrake. Mandrake. Thank you. Mustachio Mandrake. Mandrake. Uh, finds... Oh, the Mandrake root is a screaming root of mythology. I just know Mandrake roots from Harry Potter. That's still mythology. Yeah. I mean, so... draws on it, eh? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be because Mandrake's scream. So I think this movie is supposed to have a lot of parallels to, like, you know, Ripper, Mandrake, all yeah, that. Yeah, I think I don't know. I wonder. It might be a stretch, but this next scene is where Mandrake is collecting radios to impound them. Mm-hmm. Here's just some normal music. Says it's civilian broadcasting. If the Russians were attacking, wouldn't be civilian broadcasting. So he brings it to Ripper, and he says, "We're all good." I think you should call him back now. And at first he thinks, this is an exercise. Like, there's no way you're actually starting a nuclear war. And Ripper says, no, it's not an exercise. We don't want to start a nuclear war unless we have to. Exactly. (laughs) And then Mandrake says, well, civilian broadcasting is going. Probably wouldn't be doing that if we were being attacked by Russians. And Ripper says, no, it's a trick. And then Mandrake says, you have to call him back. Otherwise, I'll call him back. So I wonder if this is tying into Mandrake being the whistleblower or the voice to fix it. I don't know how much that connects, but Ripper, at this point, threatens him with a gun, locks him into a room, and says, it's it's happening. Mm -hmm. And he says in this scene, oh, this was funny. He quotes this philosopher, and he says, do you know what this politician or this philosopher whoever said about war Mandrake says, no. And he says, war is too important to be left to the generals. So the quote obviously means, can't let shit like this happen because generals are crazy. And then the Ripper conveniently says, that was good for the time, but now, me, the general, war cannot be left to politicians. Yes. So he's immediately proving it right, and it's a bit on the nose, but it's really silly and uh, funny how It is on the nose. Yeah, he's just so willingly ignorant, so he gets to go be a war hero or whatever. Yeah, very tense scene. It's really good. Ripper is a super well-written character, because I have no understanding or pity for him, but I'm along for the ride. Yeah, he's so over the top. There's a scene later on where we see him single-handedly shooting this 50 caliber machine gun, <laughs> swinging it around like he's a ridiculous character. Rambo and, before there was a Rambo. Yes, and it just works so well. And this scene being so serious, how we see shit going down. World War Three at this point guess, is starting. Yeah. And it's going to be total nuclear annihilation. And this British guy is doing his best to stop it, Mandrake. And it's very tense. And then we cut to the Pentagon with all of these generals in the war room with the president. And it is super silly. Do you want to you wanna talk about the first Pentagon scene here? So the first Pentagon scene is they think it might be an exercise. And they find out that no, it's not. And the president is pissed because he's supposed to be the only one who's allowing... Nuclear execution. Turgidson is there and he explains that Ripper went over the president because Plan R allows for these kinds of bypasses because in the event there was a sneak attack against Washington, they would have somebody who would be able to make an executive decision. So these careful plannings that the president agreed to is actually blowing up in his face because there's about to be a nuclear war issued. 
So it's good, angry, back and forth. I really like the war room scene because it's so over the top and so silly. All the war room scenes All are of them. my favorite part of the movie because the president, Peter Sellers, does such a good job of being this exasperated, super frustrated, and it seems like he's being very stern, but he's almost underselling it. He's like annoyed that someone booked a conference room over him or something. Oh, why would you do that? And then Turgidson says, well, let's not write off the whole program because of one little slip up. And (laughs) meanwhile, these B-52s are going to nuke Russia and it's just such a ridiculous scene. And uh, also what's funny in the scene is the general gets a call from the secretary and he's saying, like, I'm with my president right now. I can't talk. Yeah. And he's basically trying to calm this relationship in the middle of a nuclear war room. Uh, it's just a ridiculous sequence and very funny. So. Yeah. I think another... We skipped over it a tiny bit. It's not that bad. But they're trying to figure out the code because Ripper's the only one who knows it. And the president asks, aren't they... Well, they can't go past the failsafe. No, they hover at the failsafe they're in we can only get out there with a code which is three letters and there's 17,000 permutations should only take two days but they'll get there in 18 minutes yes and he just says <laughs> it's so matter of factly it was at this point that I realized this I, I googled it later on to see when Catch-22 by Joseph Heller was written and it was uh, early 60s mm. so I have to imagine that Joseph Heller really love this movie because that book is so ridiculous and it's filled with scenes like this where people are just contradicting each other like the the whole title is brought from the main character of the book arguing with a psychiatric doctor that he can't fly more missions because he's crazy and the doctor says you're not crazy because you don't want to fly missions and he's like well how do i prove them crazy and he's like want go fly missions He's like, but then I'll have to fly the missions, then that's a catch-22. So what, knowing scenes like that in that book and then seeing this scene, they're like, no, they're at the fail-safe. And as soon as they get to the go-ahead, they're beyond the fail-safe, so they don't come back. It'll take us two and a half days, but we have 18 minutes. And, like, all these people just walking back on their line. It's, it's really funny and uh, really witty, so it's super fun to watch and super fast. Yeah, much better than Paths of Glory. Yeah, it's great. Like, the level of tone shift. Paths of Glory, I felt frustrated and uh, mad about the hypocrisy. And here I am so amused by the hypocrisy and yeah. along with it. So I think it's a good it's a good way to go about it, I but guess. But some pretty great writers as well as a director. That's probably why he's so famous and on this list. This, okay, um, this reminds me, I know I keep saying, like, oh, it's like this other piece of media when we yeah. saw a movie to talk about. That's okay. But there's this uh, YouTuber, Lindsay Ellis, who we've talked about this before, but it's particularly relevant here, where she made a video about how springtime for Hitler was potentially a more effective anti-Nazi um, piece of media from the producers than American History X was. Because American History X relies on the viewer understanding that Nazism is bad and the filmmaker has to make Nazism alluring and make people understand why a person would be drawn to that only to show the the downfalls after. And then Springtime for Hitler is like, look at this stupid idiot. What a dickhead. We all hate him. And the result could be American History X, people might just see the allure. Paths of Glory, people might see... The heroics or whatever, uh, it might be misinterpreted, even though it's not that subtle. But this one is like, look at these stupid idiots who can't figure anything out and are causing World War Three. So, um, very... And to do both in one year is bananas. Anyhow, that's my rambling for the next few minutes. No, that uh, was great. I love that. Thank you. So they're talking about how they're going to mitigate this, and they think... <laughs> Trigidson has a very anti-Russian plan, and they'll accept some bombs. They'll accept like 10 or 20 million people dying instead of 150 million, and it'll be modest and acceptable casualties. Mm -hmm. So that's another hypocrisy thing. Like, 
the thought that they trade lives, which is completely true. They do this in war rooms. Yeah. It's just weird to see it happen. We saw a very similar scene in Paths of Glory. That's true. Where they're talking about getting through No Man's Land, through the wire, 10% casualty, 20, we'll have 40% by the end. And this is like that scene, except bigger numbers and way sillier. Because he's grinning from ear to ear. He's like, 20 million as opposed to 150. It's a great plan. 10 million taps. Exactly. Yeah. Claps about it. Then we find out that the president has called in the Russian ambassador. And Turgidson's like, no. He can't be in here. He'll see the big board. I think that was my biggest laugh. Yeah, it's just so childish. <laughs> you know, the, our board. And he's so concerned about... It, it's it's very funny. I agree. Big laugh for me as well. And then the Russian gen- the Russian ambassador does come through. And he there's a buffet table in the war room. And he asks for fresh eggs and Havana cigars. And the butler's not even like, oh, we don't have Havana cigars. He offers... Someone offers Jamaican. Jamaican. And the Russian's like, I don't want your stooge cigars or communist stooge cigar. No, no, no. I don't want your capitalist stooge cigars. He says, oh, you prefer communist stooge. So there's another parallel hypocrisy between these two great nations because it's both taking advantage of a smaller nation. And what was silly is that this ambassador comes through with a black trench coat and a black cap. He looks evil. He, they make him look like this ridiculous spy. And he is. Yes. <laughs> uh, Turgidson, well, the president turns his back for a frickin' minute, and Turgidson starts scuffling with, um, do you want to say it? No, no. No, no, I want you to say it. Okay, so they, Turgidson gets in this little slap fight with the Russian ambassador, whose name I didn't write down, and... First off, uh, they are wrestling each other on this lavish buffet, which is a ridiculous scene. The president comes up and says, gentlemen, there is no fighting in the war room. What are you doing? Which is obviously a classic line. And uh, Turgidson says, well, look at this. He has a camera. He wants to take a picture of our big board. And it's a little camera and matchboxes. And I know that you have some insight into this yeah so i went to the russian spy museum in new york when i had the opportunity to go there and they totally had those kinds of things they had cameras in buttons in belts in umbrellas purses lipstick shoes all of this crazy shit so this tiny matchbook camera that the russian spy had was totally real and they had all these different devices to try to capture intelligence literally anytime they had the opportunity and then right after this, we took a break to make poke bowls. They were great. They were great bowls. Marinated them. Jenny made this whole thing. It was a fantastic meal. Really yeah. well made. I look forward to the next one. After we had dinner, we yeah. continued. Then we got back to it. So the next scene was a brutal shootout. Like, we, we go back to the lockdown Air Force Base, and we see soldiers approaching because they were ordered there by the president to get the recall codes. But the, the soldiers at the base are expecting Russians. And we see this scene where they start shooting them down with machine guns and people are dying. It's really extended. They're lying dead in the field. So to go from, I, I think it's, uh, again, not very subtle, but to go from this war room where they're having a little slap fight, arguing about their big board, saying, gentlemen, no fighting, come on. And then we go to the actual human capital of the soldiers and it is not funny, loud, violent shooting, death in the field. Not very subtle, but it's literally silly little politicians, brutal death of soldiers. Like, yeah. this is the cost. And Mandrake even asks, where would they get tanks? And Ripper says, probably army surplus. Mm-hmm. So they both can tell that they're American tanks, but Ripper is so anti-Russian, and he's built up this complete fantasy that these are Russians that somehow got American tanks that are attacking us. Yeah. Um, I did write down the Russian's name. It's Dimitri. Dimitri, thank you. Uh-huh. We cut back to the war room. Or wait, no. Dimitri's the one they call. Oh, the, uh, the Russian president. Yeah. Well, well, that's what happens next. They call up Dimitri in the war room. The Russian translates, and they have a very funny phone conversation of, well, he went a little... You know, crazy and funny. Oh, he got a little funny, and 
just again this over the top did a silly thing yeah <laughs> he, uh, why, why don't you uh, cover the rest of the this phone call because I did not write down any lines oh well so he proposes uh, what they can do to prevent this nuclear war and we'll shoot down the planes that are coming I know there are boys yeah <laughs> he's like I know it's it's messed up. We gotta do it, though, so we don't have a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And then he hands over the phone, and Dmitri and the ambassador argue in Russian, because I don't think Dmitri believes this shit. We cut back to Mandrake and Ripper, and Ripper's got his arm tightly woven around Mandrake, and he's got the gun. And he asks, what do Russians drink? Is vodka never water? Have you heard of the fluoridation of water? <laughs> This guy's crazy because he believes that the fluoride is a Russian trick for control, and that's why he only drinks rainwater and grain alcohol. Mm-hmm. And as he's ranting about this, he's yanking that aforementioned 50 cal machine gun out of a golf bag, getting ready to shoot out the window because bullets are coming in. It's a war zone. He's screaming about fluoridation. He's telling Mandrake to come feed him his belt so he can, you know, shoot this gun and shit. And it's just nuts, like. Guy's totally crazy, very manic. And then we go back to the world where they are discussing the Doomsday device, which is essentially a device built to make it so so if you try to disarm it, it explodes. And it causes a nuclear winter for 90-some years, basically to guarantee everyone dies. And that is an anti-war thing. And there was this funny line, I think it was the president or Turgidson. No, this was... Uh, this is when we meet Dr. Strangelove, the director of weapons and research development, who is a very bizarre man. He's in a wheelchair, and he is talking about how such a thing would be simple to create with a gigantic complex of computers. And the way he describes making such a thing is not so simple. Uh, in my estimation, he's talking about computers and science and all that. And then he caps off his rant about how it would be easy to do. And he says, yeah, great device. But it's kind of pointless if you don't tell anyone about it. So why didn't you tell any of us? And he's pissed that he has not heard about it. I kind of see it as pissed that he didn't get to know about this weapon. And we learned that the Russians were going to unveil it like a couple days from then. Yeah, that's Dr. Strangelove. And I do have stuff I want to talk about him at the end with. Because this, this is a character the movie is named after. And I don't get it <laughs> but i don't know there, there's probably stuff to talk about there we cut back to the base which has this huge billboard that peace is our profession as there's these bullets slinging through the air and we go into another ripper scene and he's talking about love to mandrake and how he denies women his essence which i think is important for whatever the sex theme is of this movie so Ripper doesn't get some fuck, and that's why he's crazy, maybe? Well, he describes it. They're talking about fluoridation. He's like, you know where this came to me from? In a moment of intimacy. So, like, while he was having sex, he says he felt this hollow sensation. And I feel like this is basically saying he was sexually impotent, and it spawned this complex of war, craziness, He's so dedicated to his uh, masculinity and ability to bang that uh, this moment of inability to perform is when he came up with fluoridation, all in on this war shit. So I think I think the movie is saying a lot about it. Probably didn't have the phrase for it, but toxic masculinity. You know, we've got Jack the Ripper starting a war because he couldn't fuck good, like. <laughs> It's uh, it's all there, you know? I guess. That's a good point. And then he asks Mandrake if he's ever been tortured. Mandrake was tortured by the Japanese. Ripper has never been tortured, and he doesn't think he'll be able to withstand it. And he's walking into the bathroom, and he says, I know I'll have to answer for what I've done, and uh, I think I can. And then he goes into the bathroom, and Mandrake's like, great. Give me the code. And before he can get it, Ripper commits suicide in the bathroom. And Mandrake does not get the code. 
Yeah, and again, super heavy because I thought, okay, this is dark, clearly. He's really manic and crazy, and it's kind of ridiculous fluoridation. And then uh, he goes into the bathroom, kills himself. I thought the scene was going to end there, but it does not. Mandrake tries to open the door, and he can't open it all the way because of the body. And that one inclusion made it from like a silly, over-the-top, this general's crazy and started a war, to holy shit, like trying to push open a door, but you can't because there's a dead body. You know, that is a really heavy image. So just totally drastic shift again. Anyhow, uh, we cut to the plane. And they're being chased by a missile. Our, boy, our boy's in the plane. So, yes, so we hear tracking guy, I don't know his name, but there's a radar and it's blipping a missile. And it's closing in. And it's closing in. And this is a really tense scene. And they end up getting hit a little bit during the base of maneuvers. And after... So, I know that they're flying low. And then I might have gotten too caught up in it to really write down what happened, but they get hit by the missile, but they survive, but it knocks them a little bit loose, and it it gets a hole in their engine, or their oil reserve. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, they get shot down on orders of the U.S. president, mm-hmm. uh, to the Russian president. They evade, they sustain damage, so they don't have a radio anymore, even if they do get the code, uh, and can figure out the code, they could not communicate it to the plane, because the radio equipment is all destroyed. They specifically say even our secret radio, CRM-114. And they're losing gallons of fuel, so they can't get to their original site. So we see that uh, radio gear is destroyed, not enough fuel. And this is kind of jumping ahead, but it makes sense sequentially. The president tells the Russian guy where he's going because one plane survived. He's like, you know where they're going. And then we see that they have changed targets because of the fuel loss. So... That's all really what's relevant with the plane thing. But in between that, we see the British man get taken prisoner. Thank you. Yes. And he asks to talk to the president. And <laughs> this is another funny scene because he's getting escorted. He's like, I, you, you would interrupt a call of the president to this really hard-ass officer. He gets to a payphone and he doesn't have enough change. And he asks if the call to the president can be a collect call. But they're not accepting it. <laughs> And he's like, do you have 50 cents? And the officer's like, you think I bring loose change into battle? <laughs> and then he asks him to shoot open the cola machine. I can't remember exactly what the officer says, but if this doesn't work, you'll have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. <laughs> then he shoots open the cola machine and a bunch of chain splurts out. And then a bunch of soda water splurts out. So it's a really comedic scene. It's super comedy. Right after Mandrake got picked up from a room where he's been accused of killing Ripper, essentially. Yeah. Because Ripper, well, he committed suicide. So another juxtaposition, and there's still fighting going on. Yeah. Well, more or less. I think because this officer that's escorting him was the commanding officer of the attacking force. Mm -hmm. So I'd argue fighting is probably dumb, but maybe not. I don't know. Battlefield goes on, you know. Forgot to mention, before he gets picked up, there's a bunch of peace on earth written down. So the P-O-E, E-O-P, O-P-E variations written down. And he knows it's one of these and it gets accepted. O-P-E does get accepted. And the destroy and recall. Yeah, all the planes get uh, recalled. There's 34 total. Mm-hmm. And they think, ah, we did it. Everyone's coming back. But the one had its radio destroyed. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know where they're going. Shoot them down. You're just going to have to, Dimitri. <laughs> All your entire country's air defense system can shoot down one plane. And uh, then he's like, well, I'm just very nervous. So there's a one-way argument because we can't hear Dimitri. It's really funny. Um, we cut back to the plane, which has swapped routes. Because they're losing so much fuel, they have to go to Kotlos. Yes. Bomb door's not functioning. Yes. And uh, please, uh, oh, the nukes. So the guy climbs down with the cowboy hat, and the nukes say, uh, hi there, and dear John, which is just kind of funny, you know, because the dear John letter is 
when you when your soldier son dies or whatever and they don't know the person to turn um then what happens jenny this is a super iconic scene yeah so this guy starts hidden at the wires with his hat and eventually something's connecting but he is sitting right on top of high there and high there drops down and Khan keeps his hat and he just Yeehaws! While riding the bomb down to Cutlass, to Russia, yeah. starting some nuclear shit. And <laughs> we cut back to the war room, and uh, wheelchair man, Dr. Strangelove, he gets asked these questions like, so it's, it's happening. This cobalt thorium G. What, what's the worry here? And he's like, well, there's a bunch of mines we can go down in. That's and a great tactic strange. And the president asks, how long? And he's got this another decoder cheat cheat wheel. And it's, it's just funny because the guy's a genius, but he's still using this crazy cheat cheat to say about 93 years. Mein Fjord. Yeah. And he... <laughs> This character keeps, like, idling. He has to control his hand. He's literally punching himself to stop himself from heiling like a madman. And he calls the president Mindfuhrer multiple times. Mm-hmm. And uh, they devise this plan of how they're all going to go down into mine shafts. And, of course, we'll need military and political leadership to make it clear, uh, like, our values and everything. And then we're going to need a percentage of people... So we went from earlier, maybe 20 million, maybe 150 million casualties, to maybe a few thousand will survive in mine shafts for 100 years. And also there needs to be a 10 to 1 ratio of women to men. And these women have to be exceptionally beautiful because these men are going to have to have sex with and procreate 10 minimum. So they have to be very stimulating. And all of this stuff, and uh, all the men in the war room are like, yeah, that's a good plan. It's a great plan. <laughs> and uh, then we see, do you want to take the ending of the movie? or should No, we just... you go ahead. So he can't hold down the Heil. They start arguing about how the Russians are probably going to do the same thing. And they might swoop in and try and take some of their mine shafts. So they have to start acting now to ensure that they win the mineshaft race, they call it. And uh, Dr. Strangelove is getting all in a tizzy the whole time about these weapons and stuff, and he's so bizarre and creepy because his, his teeth look almost filed. Like, he's a very bizarre person, and he's German as shit. And then uh, they're screaming at each other, and he stands up and uh, kind of walks weird because he's in the wheelchair, and he screams, Mein Führer, I can walk. And then that uh, pretty much is it. He screams, mind fear, I can walk. And then we cut to a montage of nuclear bombs exploding for a very long time. Very many nuclear bombs as this uh, little love song. We'll Meet Again. We'll Meet Again plays in the background. So very similar to the B-52s over the springtime music. We got the sweet love song, We'll Meet Again, over... The End of Mankind. Very iconic ending, and before I forget, it reminds me, spoilers for Black Klansman real quick, but the ending reminded me of Black Klansman because we see this movie play out, Hero wins at the end, and then it cuts to the reality of the situation, which is uh, a murder committed at a like a, a rally for African American rights. and well, some, Charlottetown? Oh, Charlottetown. Heather Heyer? Yes. Yeah. So there was a murder committed. Well, the woman got hit by a alt-right person at a protest. Yes. So there was a murder committed. Yeah. And uh, it, the whole point of the ending is, hey, we saw this heroic act early on. Things are still not good. Humanity is basically fucked. And Dr. Strangelove is, um, you know, all of these morons are in charge they have nuclear weapons, we're all fucked. And it's it's anti-war, and it is not hopeful. So, that's Dr. Strangelove. I want to get your opinion on that last bit. 
See, I think that's so wrapped up in deeper meaning that it's just whizzing past my head because I don't get it. I don't get what it means that he can walk. Me neither. I will admit, I looked up some, I, I had no original theories. Oh. So I Googled, what does it mean? And I found some old forum. Would you be interested in hearing forum ideas? Yeah. So the first thing was there was a rumor that Peter Sellers, who plays the president and Strangelove, uh, just got up accidentally and he improv that line and i feel like based on everything i read because i google that quite a bit and it seems like that's kind of similar to the dustin hoffman in midnight cowboy where he bangs the hood of the car and says i'm walking here um or is that joe pesci it's joe pesci joe pesci i'm walking here he claims he improved it the writer says he wrote that line it kind of smacks to me of a situation like people say it was improv to give it some mystique but it was written so i don't think that's it but someone else pointed out, like, hey, they were just talking about how they need able-bodied men to fuck ten women for a hundred years. He's going to force himself to stand up and act like an able-bodied man. And also, this is my favorite, and I wish I could claim credit for these, but they're just random anonymous posters on the internet. Strangelove changed his name from this very German name because he was a former Nazi scientist, and... He is stopping himself from calling President the Fuhrer, basically equating these world leaders to be no better than one another. They're all authoritative murderers that are causing, they're just gambling with lives. He's trying to prevent himself from heiling, which shows that like this Nazi mentality is not dead, it's still there, and it's just under the surface. And then at the end, when war begins and they all agree to Strangelove's plans, he stands up, this Nazi is again empowered to uh trample so people who have seen this movie and studied it many times are kind of pointing out how strange love is kind of a stand-in for fascism and nazism and the whole movie is lending power to that or talking about how our war machine is lending power to this fascist uh idea so way more intelligent than anything i could ever come up with i just thought it was a weird wheelchair guy but i think there's a lot to be said there and like you said earlier all these names they've got to be symbolic of some shit you know there's a lot going on a lot to a lot to read into i think a lot of that makes sense because um dr strangelove or how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb like the guy's name is the title and also he learned to stop worrying and love the bomb and this one i will admit i'll claim it learn to stop worrying and love the bomb because now they all get to go down like dominate in the mine shafts and have sex for a hundred years because of the bomb you know so not to mention kong clearly loves the bomb he's riding that thing down like a celebration to blow up russia so there's my unhinged ramble wow what what do you like and dislike what do you what thoughts are still in the air for you about this movie well, you just blew my mind with all that fascism stuff. It blew my mind, too. I reread it like three times a day. <laughs> That's awesome. I like that this was a funny satire. I like this kind of take. I think comedy is a great way to take on serious topics and make them more approachable. Because Path to Glory, it's like, oh, what is it to be a man? Uh-huh. Whereas this is like, men are dirty. path to glory was like that too what is it to be a man there's good and there's the evil but dr strangelove i think the boys in the jet were supposed to be good because they're doing their duty but the men at top who are telling them well i guess ripper told them what to do and then the president's deciding they get to die to save everyone on the planet so what what is good would you would you kill five people to save three billion? Yes. <laughs> and that's that's an evil question. And in a black and white view, it's an evil answer. But I think the spectrum of morality shows that most people are leaning more black than they are white. I think it's a much more cynical movie than Paths of Glory. I'd agree, because there's some redemption for that. General, not the general, but the guy who gets executed at the end, like, he gets to die a hero, whereas here, the men who are dying as heroes, Chong, who's dying as a hero, is, um, 
gluttony is the wrong word, but there's definitely pride as he's about to murder he's, a bunch of Russians. He's super eager to go kill. Yeah, this movie's pretty racist against Russians, too. Yeah. Which was a sentiment. 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 What the hell? Sentiment. Sentiment? Yeah. Uh, against the Russians. And there is an African-American character. James Earl Jones is one of the boys in the cockpit. And when Kong is talking about the promotions, regardless of race or creed, we're all going to get some ups after this. Unless if you're a Russian, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, the humor is way, way more effective mm-hmm. um, at being anti-war. I guess uh, it was also much more watchable than Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory is only a few minutes longer, and it feels much longer. It's way slower. Yeah. This one is clipping along with jokes, lots of different scenes. There's only three settings, mm-hmm. and uh, they flip between them so fast that it goes really fast. The pacing is much better. Yeah, in terms of pacing, this movie definitely felt more modern. What do you dislike? I dislike that it's a movie about white men. Another, <laughs> you know, another 60s movie about white men doing white men shit. I think there's going to be quite a few more of those on this list. As a commentary on humanity. Yeah. It's very much narrowed scope. Yeah. But I guess it's a commentary on warmongering humans and the war at the time was Russians and Americans. All the... Uh, Right, but we saw James Earl Jones. In yeah, song, so. that's fair. Yeah, I I agree. Dislike. Do you think the tone shifts were too much? Because the more we talked about it, the more I think going from silliness to barbarism, barbarism is effective. But then there's in-scene stuff like the suicide of Ripper. Mm-hmm. Normally we see, oh, politicians, funny. Soldiers, brutal. But then we see Ripper being crazy, silly, kills himself. Well, what the fuck? It's almost too jarring, but I think can't fault it for that because that's obviously its goal, you know? Well, Ripper was always extreme. Yeah. True. You ready to write it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but any, any, any other things to add on? Well, you could write a whole essay about what suicide means in the context of this movie, I think. Yeah. So, I don't know if saying that he was silly and then he killed himself is appropriate. Because okay. I, don't, I don't feel like that's how he went out. Because I think he was facing reality because he asked, like, he asked Mandrake, have you ever been tortured? I don't think I could be tortured. So that's another, that's another sign that it really thinks it's Russians out there. So his worldview has been completely twisted. I guess, so, not to be like, I didn't mean to imply he's going like, whoa, and then goes and kills himself. But we see him earlier on talking about fluoridation, and the purpose of that is to be like, this guy is totally disconnected, and he's the villain at that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're encouraged to dislike I don't know if he's him. a villain. He started World War Three. He's, he's sending people to die. But so would have Turgidson. He would have let 10 or 20 million people die. Was Turgidson a villain? Well, I feel like pretty much everybody is, except for the people on the plane, like we talked about. And well, even well they're going to go bomb Cotlas. Yeah, so and even them. Which isn't even their target. Right. So how are they good? Who's good in this movie? Who's evil? Who's the villain? Is America the villain? Suppose I retract my statements about Ripper. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't really have anything else to add. Right on three? Okay. One, two, three, eight. eight. All right. All right. All eight. Eight for Doctor Strange Over How I Learned to Stop Worrying About the Bomb. Seven for Passive Glory. And what did we say for The Shining? Seven and a half? No, Shining Eight. Eight? Yeah. Uh, now we got three more, which are going to be Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Not looking forward that one. 2001? Yeah, that movie's so cerebral. Well, uh, thanks for listening. And email us. Go to our website and tweet at us. What are those things? Email us at review at gmail.com Go to our website at com, and then tweet us at rmr 
underscore podcast at rmr underscore podcast. That's the tweet. That's the Twitter. That's the Twitter. And uh, yeah, new episodes every Sunday, huh? Yeah, I guess. We're trying. We're doing. If Dan edits, they're early Sunday. If I edit, they're late Sunday. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.